This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome to the Educated Home Buyer Live. This is where Josh and I answer your questions, your mortgage and real estate questions live here on the air. Uh, you're probably seeing us on YouTube for the most part. That's where we stream with the most people. Uh, but you might be catching us on Instagram as well. So if you have mortgage real estate related questions, put them in there. We'll do our best to answer them for you, kind of monitoring two different things. But this past week, Josh, uh, some changes with regards to, uh, well, last week, let's let's start there. CPI numbers came in a little bit higher than expectations, uh, but more or less in line with what we said was going to happen, right? Rounding numbers came in, um, which pushed them up but put inflation essentially where we thought it would be. Since then, we've had retail sales come out. And then what was Tuesday? Tuesday was something that changed the, the progress of the market. Tuesday, we about. had Waller saying bad yeah. things. Yeah, so we had the Fed, one of the Fed members come out and who's been a, a relatively dovish member when it comes to the Fed was a not quite as dovish in his statements. And with that, we saw the 10-year go up. Today, retail sales uh, weren't quite as bad as were expected and uh, saw another pop in the market. So we saw the 10-year go up again. Rates have trended up a little bit since then. Um, but if you guys have been here for any period of time, a couple of weeks back, Josh and I talked about CPI numbers coming in. We talked about the idea that they were probably going to come in a little bit higher than expected. And we also talked about jobs, which also came in a little bit higher than expected, coming in that way because of December because of part-time jobs and then retail sales, people spending money during the holidays, which is part of what we're seeing now. Now, part of the question is, is that uh, money in cash? Probably not. It's probably being spent on cards, right, Josh? So the slowing, the spending never slows down. Um, and we actually get those numbers here in a couple of days when we see the credit card numbers. But those have impacted the market, not in the way that we would have hoped, but it's part of the process in you know, numbers coming down and us trending in the right direction, which is essentially what we're expecting over the next couple of months. But well, Josh, one, of the, what, one of the things, Jeb, that we had warned about through the holidays, we got a huge improvement in a very short period of time. Then through the holidays here in 2023, we saw some continued improvement. And the year before, we saw some irrational give back. So it generally, whatever happens through the holidays, you, you come back January 2, January 3, whatever the first trading day is, and everything kind of normalizes. So some of the weakness that we've seen here towards the start of the year was just giving back that uh, sort of irrational exuberance through the holidays. But most importantly, Jeb, what we talked about is that was a big, big move that pretty much for the most part went in one direction. We had no consolidation. We had no give back for the better part of two months. So I don't think anything we're seeing here is unexpected. Could it be a reversal? Could it be going back the other direction and giving back too much of this? Um, yeah, it could. But uh, until we get later in the month, we see PCE, we see next month's CPI, which we know is going to be good when we see the January jobs data. Um, lots of sort of leading indicators out there are still telling us weakness is going to come. But at the same time, 
most people were expecting. Not a lot of weakness, but a, a, a moderate uh, retail sales report, and it came hot. So we'll, like you said, find out about credit card balances. One of the things that, to my understanding, Jeb, is not included in the credit card balances is these pay, buy now, pay later, Klarna, and all those things online where you can buy from Shopify without paying for them now. And younger folks, um, millennials, Gen Z, love that stuff more so than credit cards. So be interesting to see how the data catches up with what is going into the spending that we're seeing. Now, good stuff. So I just realized the biggest problem we have here, Josh, is that because we're streaming on Instagram with phones and it's not being syndicated to StreamYard, when we talk about charts here in a moment, people are going to be lost. They're going to be wondering what the hell we're talking about. So they'll see our they'll see our pretty faces. You'll see our faces, but the charts you will not see. So if you want to see the charts, you got to head over to YouTube. Uh, for anybody listening on Spotify or you know uh, Apple, you know when we post these on the podcast later on Friday, there's a link in the description where you can actually go check out these charts if you're interested. But every single week we talk about inventory, and this week's not going to be any different. In fact, this week we saw a moderate increase in inventory. We saw it up 1.2 percent week over week, uh, which is about 6,000 homes now. It's not a lot, but if you compare it to what we saw last year uh, throughout the year, 6,000 homes was average for some weeks. So the fact that we saw an increase of 6,000 is a step in the right direction. I think we went from 499 to 505 nationwide um, single family homes when we're talking about those numbers here in Orange County. 1,860 homes. So that's essentially where we were the same time last week. I think maybe two or three more homes in this time last week. But that number includes condos, single families, townhomes, uh, senior-only properties, multi-million-dollar properties. All of those numbers are wrapped up in that 1860. So still waiting for inventory to increase here. Huntington Beach, we're sitting at 158 properties, which is about six more than this time last week. So we're seeing small increases. This chart essentially just shows you the ebb and flow of that inventory going back all the way to 2019 where we were in a more normal market versus where we are now. And this market, this uh, particular chart, new listings. So new listings uh, this past week, what, what roughly 40,000 new listings coming to the market compared to last year, about 36,804 or somewhere in that ballpark. 2022 was 37,000. So a couple more new listings coming to the market this time of year compared to years past. That's a positive thing, right? More new listings on the market gives you more of an opportunity to have, you know, the right home, um, you know, potentially less competition because there's more property spread out between people. And then this chart is essentially the same chart, just different context, giving you what it looks like over a year, uh, but essentially 5% more properties in this same week last year coming to the market. And then this is a breakdown. Um, for those of you watching here, again, I keep I'm referencing charts that are on YouTube, but the increase, uh, as we said, went up about six thousand homes this same week last year. We only increased about two thousand. So context there is always important. And then let's see here: uh, contracts pending, two hundred and fifty-one thousand single-family homes in contract, which is five percent more than last year. Um, and that includes 42,000 new contracts, also 5% more than last year. So more people going under contract. So there's more new listings, but also more people under contract, probably because rates are, you know, trended down a little bit from where they were at the highs. 
We're still higher than we were this time last year coming into the market. But when people see an 8% and then they see six and a half or 6.75, the psychology is a little bit different than it was the same time last year. And, and, and with that, you got more options to choose from. Uh, but price reductions, price uh, cuts, if you will, are sitting somewhere around 32% uh, on a nationwide basis. In a normal market, you have about one third of homes, about 33% doing a price cut. So we're pretty much normal at this point when it comes to price cuts. But this same time last year, about 36% of the homes had a price cut. Uh, back in 2022, only 21%. That's crazy, Josh. Think about that. Only 21% of the homes back in 2022 had a price cut. So considerably different than that, but better than last year, or depending on how you're looking at it, less than last year. And now, Josh, we're talking about retail sales. So we saw retail sales jump a little bit coming in at 0.6 versus, I think, 0.4 or 0.3. Um, what are we looking at here? Really just looking at the, the trend here over time. So this wasn't a huge spike. This wasn't a massive beat. Um, so when we're looking at this, is this something that would be inflationary? If consumers are out there buying all sorts of stuff, yes, absolutely inflationary. This just shows that the, the trend is continuing. So anyone looking for weakness in the economy has not seen it yet. As we talked about at the top of the show, if we find out that the, the majority of this spending was financed, we have a lower savings rate, higher credit card balances, um, it, it will just basically pull forward next year's demand. It tells us there will be more yeah. weakness going forward if that is what we end up seeing. You know, Josh, not, not a chart that we're looking at, but I saw something this past week that I read that about that they believe, I, I, I believe it was the Fed said that they believe about 75% of the rate hikes have made it through the market, right? So meaning that still 25% of what they've done hasn't had hasn't yet impacted the market is with regards to slowing down the economy. So you've still like you're still likely going to see that slowdown in the economy, which in turn is going to help inflation come down. Uh, this, you know, we had published on Tuesday on the podcast uh, channel, we did our 2024 forecast. And one of the things in there is a forecast for lower interest rates based off of lower inflation and a slowing economy, maybe not a recession, but slower growth than we saw last year and had a good back and forth with a, a viewer who had mentioned a couple things. Well, hey, everything going on in the Middle East, you've seen the, the spike in container prices for shipping. So that is absolutely true. Um, how that impacts and works its way through in inflation. It won't be a positive thing. Um, how big of a thing will depend on how long this, uh, this continues. Even if things were to sort of normalize over there and we don't have these terrorist attacks on transportation ships, the cost of insurance, the choice of some shippers to just take different shipping routes, longer shipping routes, absolutely would be something that would be inflationary. Um, it would have to continue for a long time and impact a large amount of global goods to have much of a difference. It's something worth watching. And their other point was, hey, OPEC says they're going to cut again. That means oil prices are going up. So you're not going to have this deflationary uh, pressure downwards uh, on inflation from oil prices. Well, we can look, we pretty much have been somewhere between 60 and 80 for the better part of the last five years. We're right in the middle of that range. I keep hearing people with forecasts that oil is going to the moon. We're going to see $300 a barrel oil. And yet it never happens for- well, I for also hear that people say the market's going to crash. I haven't seen that either. Yeah. So it's something that we want to keep an eye on. And, and one of the things that you want to see here, back in COVID, we were down to $17 a barrel. Just last year, we were up at almost $120 a barrel. There's a reason why 
food and energy is stripped out of that core price because it's volatile. It goes up and down and not a lot of rhyme or reason. So uh, from that perspective, that's why we look at core. It's not something that I expect either of those to have a huge impact and overcome the, the disinflationary forces that we have here. This one here is, is sort of interesting. Um, the the earnings surprise uh, over the, over the last five years, you can see um, coming out of COVID, we had these big earnings surprises. Those bars got littler and littler each year, and now we're looking at those that have, have announced so far in Q1 are surprising to the downside, not surprising to the upside. So it's one of those things that we look forward and it's telling us there's there's more weakness. This one, Jeb, a big problem for people. Uh, again, uh, we've we've seen a nice improvement from up over 250 in this used vehicle index down to 204 and you go that's that's a nice improvement it is but when that number is normally around 150 we are still 35 percent higher than what it normally would be this should normalize over time i don't think used cars are magic um but we'll see and it's something worth watching that along with shelter are kind of the two longest stickiest forms of inflation that we're seeing um this here jeb just we're seeing a normalizing in wages so we look at the employment report every month and we look at that because that tells us are we likely to see wage inflation coming forward so we've seen nice improvement a nice uptrend in wages but it's moderating and it hasn't been inflationary so far. Uh, it'll be interesting to, to watch that going forward. Another one we've always talked about here on the show, Jeb, that the government, for whatever reason, likes to look at consumer inflation expectations because once people expect that home price or home prices, that prices of goods are going to be more in the future, it will impact their, their buying decisions. They will hold off on buying things. Uh, it tells us that sellers of goods can feel like, hey, they're expecting that we're going to raise prices, so we can do it. We're down to about 3% consistently throughout this process. Uh, the consumer has expected inflation to be higher than what it was going to be. It is normalized and moderated much faster, and I expect that will be the case here. We get but, but, but if you look at that, pri prior to 20, you know, the end of 21, Beginning of 2022, the consumer was expecting inflation about 3%, which is essentially what they're expecting now. So we're kind of back to that trend uh, prior to the pandemic. Yep. So normalization there. Threw this one in there for you guys. Most people don't know. Um, there are permanent voters and then a rotating cast of voters for the Fed. And we have two doves outgoing, people who would generally tend towards lower interest rates and two hawks who would tend towards higher interest rates. They're being replaced by two doves, another hawk, and someone that's kind of moderate in between. And I forget which one of the incoming voters is actually going to be out mid-year and getting replaced by another dove. So it's something that other things being equal, the people that are voting this year are more inclined to lean towards the dovish side. Jeb, this was in a newsletter that you get that you shared with me, and I think it's an important one. Um, we talked about this on, on the podcast we recorded today for next week. If you are in the market, once you have a contract, you need to be shopping for your homeowner's insurance. Uh, it's getting increasingly difficult and it's causing increasingly more delays. So not only are we seeing the premiums up, it's just not as simple as calling your insurance broker and having evidence of insurance later that day or the next day. We're seeing three, five, seven, 10 days in some situations. So this is just showing percentage of houses, properties, uh, housing properties identified as a risk for insurance correction due to fire risk. So those of us here on the West Coast prone to fire. 
uh, on the southeast and the east coast, it's due to wind risk. And then to a lesser degree, we have some risk here due to floods. We've talked about it on the show. My house is actually below sea level, so I have a little bit of flood risk there. Well, what part of the thing is like people are like, why is the cost going up? Well, there's a couple of different factors. One is, you know, the is the risk of natural disasters, right? So everything we've mentioned here between fire, flood and wind all has to do with with natural disasters happening. And Florida, right, hasn't seen a major hurricane in some period of time, right? So the likelihood of, of something happening sooner than later is, is a bit higher just because they haven't seen it. And and traditionally speaking, you see one ever, every, one every so many years. The other thing is like California, for example, there were um, I, there were pauses and, or, you know, I, I can't think of the word, but, uh, where insurance companies essentially couldn't raise dues, if you will, couldn't raise premiums for an extended period of time on cars, on automobiles and or houses. And so what happened is this past year that changed. And so what you saw in California is insurance premiums get jacked. You saw homeowners insurance get jacked. And then in addition to that, you saw homeowners insurance companies just leave the state of California because they're like, we can't, we're not making any money here with all the, all the, you know, the, 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 the accidents, the, you know, the natural disasters, all of that stuff that we have to take place that take place. We're just out and therefore they just leave. And so then you've got less people in the state competing for the same business, which in turn means they probably can raise rates, you know, a little bit higher. But my understanding in talking to people is they pretty much raised them as high as they could because there was a limit, there was a ceiling. But going forward, they don't have this uh, this cap, if you will. And you're likely going to continue to see premiums go up in a lot of these areas that we're talking about. Unfortunately, um, this year, just like to show you guys the chart. This is the 10-year treasury. Mortgages are actually more closely following the five or the seven right near, but the 10 is sort of the gold standard for tracking that. You see from the middle of October through the beginning of the year, we had this nice downtrend. Well, since the start of the year, it's either sideways or you could show that as a slight uptrend. If we look at mortgage-backed securities, it's the, the reverse here because you want higher prices for lower yields, lower interest rates. So we had this up-channel in prices, and you can see more clearly here it's gone sideways. So mortgage bonds have performed a little bit better than treasuries here for the first part of the year. But going back to the top of the show, it's exactly what Jeb was talking about. Um, we're getting a little bit of mixed signals, nothing saying, hey, inflation is coming back strong or the economy is overheating, but nothing saying that the economy is cooling like we had hoped or that we saw this big continued decrease in inflation, which we do expect to pick up with next month's readings. So from that regard, what are we looking at? Rates are a little bit worse. Um, Optimal Blue has a 30-year fixed at 6.6. Uh, Mortgage News Daily has it 6.88. That again is best qualified borrowers, good size down payment, perfect credit. Uh, if we look at the FHA, you're looking lower there, 6.15 for Mortgage News Daily, 6.45 for Optimal Blue. You should be able to get something with zero points somewhere in that six and a quarter range. You have a 640 plus FICO. Um, but in general, we've given back some of the gains, but still much, much better than where we were, um, you know, September, October. So where we're at is wait and see. We need some more data and some data to confirm that the economy is moderating, inflation is moderating, continuing to decrease, which we do expect we will see. Um, but it's just wait and see until we get some data. Yeah. And, and we talked about this, right? This shouldn't be a surprise. It, the volatility is still in the market. There's no you know, down straight trend in employment and inflation. Some of these numbers are bouncing around a little bit um, until you get the clear indicator that, hey, inflation has moderated employment um, is 
you can be stable, but isn't, you know, continuing to uh, the unemployment rate isn't continuing to get better and better and better every week, you know, week over week, which I think will happen here in the next couple of reports. So by the end of the first quarter, we're going to know a lot more with regards to the economy. You're going to have a little bit more stability, in my opinion, with regards to the direction that we're headed. But until then, we'll be here updating you every single week as we do on the live episode, which is on YouTube, on Instagram, and we take this and we took it to the podcast. So if you're not familiar here, if this is your first time, um, you know, this is my channel, Jeb Smith. It's on YouTube. We syndicate to, to a couple other channels and Facebook and some other places, but if you are not familiar, we have a podcast called The Educated Home Buyer, which is different than this, where we really take topics and dive them down in a way that you can understand. Uh, we just celebrated 100 episodes this past week, which is two years of consistently showing up and doing these for you guys, free education to become the expert home buyer, the educated home buyer, if you will. So if you haven't done so, head over to The Educated Home Buyer podcast, subscribe to the channel. If you like that kind of content, if you like podcasts, you like being educated, go check it out. And if you find value, share it with somebody. That's the way we grow here. We rarely ask for anything. Uh, so I'm asking for you to help us grow. Um, I'm almost 100,000 subs on YouTube. And, you know, we want to continue to grow the podcast. And you're the, you're the easiest way for us to get there. So if you find any value, like and subscribe and help us on this journey. So Josh. This is the point in the show where we talk and answer questions live. So if you're watching on Instagram, you can drop a question there. Hopefully I see it because I'm kind of managing a couple of different things, but we're going to answer some questions here to help you guys make the right decisions as buyers out there in the market. So one of the first questions that came in um, came from Nicole, uh, who is a regular viewer here, just says, how much does a rate buy down cost the seller? Is it better to get a credit for repairs or get a rate buy down instead? So Here's the thing is when you ask for cost from the seller, the in theory, the seller shouldn't really care where the cost is going um, because the money is the same for them. If you ask them for $10,000, the $10,000 is the same cut off the seller's uh, profit, if you will, whether you use it for a rate buy down and or closing cost. So a lot of times, it, you know, it can be worded a couple of different ways, but it's probably going to be worded that the money is towards closing costs and then you can use it to buy down the rate, you can use it towards uh, any other fees that may come show up in that way, but you're not going to do it towards repairs. You're, you're rarely ever going to get a, an addendum sign that says this $10,000 is for repairs because my understanding, at least back in the day, Josh, when I was in the loan business is if you get repairs, the lender wants to know what repairs and wants them, once those repairs completed and proof of them completed prior to closing, which is a hindrance to the entire process. So why don't you touch on that? Yeah, it's just a red flag to the lender of saying, hey, if this is a big enough deal that you're getting a credit from the seller for this, what is it? And is it something that we need to be aware of? Is something that your appraiser needs to comment on? Something that needs to be done prior to closing? So from that standpoint, it is just better to list it as, hey, here's a $10,000 credit towards closing costs. They don't need to know why. It's just what you have agreed to uh, between buyer and seller. Now, with that, she asked the question, how much does a rate buy-down cost? So let's just take a minute here and, and answer that question. What, what does a rate buy-down cost? 
depends on the type of buy down. Obviously, it makes sense, right? If we're doing a three, two, one buy down, we got 3% lower for a year, 2%, 1%. So we got three years of buy down and the third year at the highest amount of 3%. A two, one buy down is 2% for a year and then 1% for a year. A lot of people are choosing a little one O buy down right now, believing that in the next 12 months, rates are going to be lower. They'll have an opportunity to refinance. So that's the cheapest of all. So it's a calculation and it varies by loan size, varies by where interest rates are on any given day. So in general, the most common is the two one buy down with rates where they are right now it's just a hair less than two points to pay for that so you can get it from right. a seller there are there are lender paid options for that as well where you end up taking a higher rate over the long haul and that subsidizes that lower rate for the first two years but josh don't you also have the option instead of doing a two one buy down or a one oh buy down that you could just buy it down a quarter percent you don't have to actually do this you know any sort of buy down where money's going into an escrow account you can actually just buy down the rate where that is your rate for the period of of the loan the loan term so it's the difference between a temporary buy down and a permanent buy down. So the permanent buy down, you will get the benefit of for the remaining life of the loan. But again, on a permanent buy down, a general rule of thumb is 1% will get you a quarter percent lower rate. So you've got a $400,000 loan, $4,000 will drop that rate a quarter of a percent. With that, your break even is out over 60 months. Most people are not both in their home and in the same loan for 60 months. And even if they were, that doesn't take into account the time value of money of maybe you would have rather used that money for something else kept the money in the bank, kept it liquid, paid a bigger down payment and not had as big of a loan. So all of those things need to be weighed out. That being said, Jeb, a lot of the things that we've been seeing over the last six, eight months is you get a little bit more bang for your buck right now. Three eighths, sometimes a half a percent lower for paying one point. And it's really the lender's way of incentivizing you to put some skin in the game and hopefully keep that loan on the books longer. They feel if you've paid some points for that interest rate, you're less likely to refinance away from them in the future. Yeah. And speaking on that, I mean, this last loan that I had, I had two months, right? Two months. Closed November 9th. The refinance closed today. And I saved half a percent in the rate. Crazy. Um, <clears throat> with that said, all right, um, let's see. We're going to, um, let's see. We I had the question. Uh, D. Scott. So D. Scott says, when it comes to a buyer finding a, a buyer's agent in 2024, is the new law in place where the seller and listing agent doesn't have to compensate the buyer's agent. So let's be clear. There's no law at the moment. Uh, there's just a court case, right? So there's been a court case and now there is um, a rebuttal, if you will, or a, what's the word I'm looking for, Josh? You, tr you tricked me by by asking. Um, <laughs> what what's happens when you get a court case and well, you're yeah. trying to overturn it? A, re I forget. Appeal. Anyhow, a repeal. Appeal. There we go. <laughs> Appeal. Appeal, yes. Or that yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. We're no attorneys here, guys. Uh, but anyway, it's an appeal, right? But you've got so many cases out there at the moment. But here's the deal. It's going to change. A lot of MLSs have already changed their policy, which says that the seller, the seller, the 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 listing agent no longer have to compensate the buyer's agent um, in order to to facilitate that commission side. Now, here's the deal. The seller never in theory, at least here locally, had to pay the buyer's commission. It was always kind of best practice to do it because it would help them maximize time, price, everything else. You're going to have to start having that conversation now. As a buyer, this is a conversation you're going to have to have with your agent. And it doesn't matter what agent you go with, you're going to have to have this conversation. So there's a couple of different options in how this is works in 20. 
24. Uh, we're actually going, doing a podcast that's going to drop next week where we discuss this in detail. We're going to talk about the whole buyer's agent thing. But the seller still has the option to pay the commission, which, in my opinion, is still the right direction. They're going to maximize price. We're going to talk about that why in the podcast. But they also have the option of not offering a commission at all. I think that's a bad route to go. They can offer a partial commission. That's also an option. But you as a buyer, you have the option to now pay your agent if you want, if there's not a compensation being offered by the seller uh, or partial compensation. There's ways to split it. One party pay part of it. The other party pay whatever the, the difference is, whatever you've negotiated. And then the third option is that you as a buyer ask your agent to still have the seller pay it. That's part of the negotiation. So there's a lot going on here, a lot to unravel, a lot that we're not going to talk about today Today, because it does require a lot of kind of going into the weeds, if you will. So next week's episode, Buyer's Commission, I'll talk about it next week on the live to have you guys go check it out, but stay tuned when it comes to that. All right, Josh, um, Andre is asking a question. Will I get two 1099 forms? I bought a house in May and before my before my first mortgage payment was was sold to another lender. Okay, got it. So they got a they got a loan. They they had a lender. That lender changed to a new lender. The servicing rights changed. So now they have a lender. Are they going to get two different 1098s or are they going to get one? Most likely you will get two because even if you never made a payment to the one uh, at closing, there was some prepaid interest that was collected and they need to give you credit for that. So you'll probably get one little one and then one slightly larger one. And that will always be the case whenever it's sold or transferred in the middle of the year. Last year, one of mine went from loan care to Chase and we ended up getting two. So this year we'll only get one from Chase because they had it all 12 months. But yes, you are correct. Good stuff. Uh, Jay Homeboy says, is there a minimum balance needed to refinance and or recast a loan? So maybe touch on, uh, you know, answer the question, but maybe just touch on briefly what a recast is, because a lot of people are unfamiliar with the term recast. So two different questions are needed to refinance and or recast. So the recast is I'm making a large principal payment and I want to stretch out the repayment. So reduce the monthly payments and keep my remaining loan term. So I'm 12 months into my loan. I paid $50,000 on it. I want to reduce it because what will happen with that principal reduction, if you continue making the required principal interest payment based off your original balance, it's just going to cut years off of the back of it as more will go to principal every year as less interest is accruing. So is there in a minimum number? No, because there's not any number that you're ever guaranteed. You always have to call the servicer and say, hey, I did this or I'm planning on doing this. Do you allow a recast and will you uh, approve it in this situation? So I'm sure there is a minimum number. If we have a five or a $10,000 payment, they don't want to be doing recasts every time that happens. Most of them have a small charge for preparing the documents, recording it, all that fun stuff. So I wouldn't plan on doing it unless you had a, a decent sized uh, down payment or payment of 25 to say 50,000. Now that flip side of is there a minimum balance needed to refinance? What happens is once you get loans under $100,000, it gets really, really hard for that loan to be done in a compliant manner. Um, because we have restrictions on what the total costs can be charged to you. And that's eaten up largely by the fixed costs of an appraisal of escrow of title of recording fees, all that fun stuff. So if you're much under 100,000, it's going to be hard. So $50,000, loan. And then we also look at that, Jeb, in terms of if you take our rule, 125,000, divide it by your loan amount, you have 
$50,000 loan, you need to save two and a quarter, two and a half percent before it even makes sense to do it just because that loan is so small and the total interest you're paying is, is pretty minimal. There you go. Uh, good stuff. Caleb says, do you think new builds in the at or below median home price will become more common? Located in Madison, Wisconsin, the average new build is way above median price and forcing even more pressure on the entry. So I don't think the median, more homes at or below median is going to become more common um, just because of building cost. Uh, builders are in the business of making money. Um, and if they can build more expensive homes and buyers are still willing to buy those homes, why would they result, you know, start building less expensive homes unless there's some sort of incentive, which at the moment there's no incentive to do so. So builders are going to maximize price. They're going to build smaller homes on smaller lots uh, in order to build more homes in order to, again, maximize profit in that deal. So <clears throat> there's just very little incentive for anybody to build a home at or below the median home price if there's people willing to pay more for them. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. If you're in an area where nobody's buying these homes, maybe there's incentive to, to build less expensive, but for the most part, I don't see any reason they would do that. Josh, anything on that? No, uh, you know, if if there's pressure, when there was pressure as interest rates going up, we saw the median prices coming down. So there was a little bit of pressure to maybe not as extensively upgrade the homes to minimize the prices. But builders' whole purpose is maximizing profit. It's not maximizing affordable housing, unfortunately. All right. Uh, let's see here. I saw... So we got a question on the dream for all. So we know very little about the, the details at the moment because it hasn't been released when this is going to happen again, but it will. Uh, regarding eligibility for dream for all, basically first generation home buyer means your parents can't have owned a home in the last three years. Is that a weird restriction of getting a loan? Absolutely. It's weird. I mean, I mean, it's just weird in general. They couldn't have owned a home in the last three years. Like, it, so I let's. Get, first time home Jim, buyer but yeah let's let's look at this two ways the first three or four calls that i got when the dream for all was announced last year were from people that made a ton of money and had nice big down payments and they wanted to figure out how they could get the free money that no one at the state level said hey how do we help this couple that has two hundred and fifty thousand dollars annual income and a 20 percent down payment afford a home they it's not it wasn't there to help them go from 900,000 to a million two on purchase price. It was there to help the people who might qualify for 450 in homes in their neighborhood or six. How do we make that happen? So I definitely agree with putting up restrictions. There are we, we are making value judgments that some people don't need help and others do. I think this is absurd that one of those requirements is, hey, your parents uh, owned a, didn't own a home, so you need more help than someone else. The thought is this whole idea of generational wealth, you have a leg up, privilege, essentially. You're saying you're privileged because your parents own a home. Your parents could hate you. Um, and would Josh's never do never give you a down payment, never give you assistance, never do anything to help you, yet you would be ineligible. And let's say, how many people are estranged from their parents? Many people are. So I'm supposed to go, hey, my parents don't talk to me, but let me go get some proof from them that they don't own their home. Like, I just don't even know how that is a viable criteria. But we, we saw it kicked around last year. Um, and it's just silly. We we saw that literally our friends in Sacramento were saying that they were upset at the number of white people who were able to benefit from the program. Like things that you didn't used to be able to say out loud, you can say out loud now. You know, to me, someone that is at or below 
moderate income, I don't care what color they are. If they're out working and they've saved a little bit and they've built up their credit, let's help them get into a house. We shouldn't be, be drawing lines of saying which groups should be helped. It's let's help people who otherwise would not be able to get in the home. And if we're helping um, groups that have lower home ownership rates, uh, you know, blacks, Hispanics, I get it. I want to do that too. And I'm hoping that there's a way that we can set these criteria that makes sense that can can disproportionately help the groups that have been disproportionately underrepresented among homeowners. But to me, this one's just wild. Well, there you go. There's Josh's breakdown. He was he just stepped off his soapbox. You see him go down in height. Uh Basark. Basark? says price cuts are dropping, meaning people are making less price cuts. Yes. So towards the end of last year, third quarter, I'm sorry, fourth quarter of last year, there's four quarters in a year. You didn't know that. Uh, the fourth quarter of last year, about 38% of homeowners were doing some sort of price cut on properties in order to sell them. You have to understand where the market was at that time, right? Slower market, seasonality, rates were high, less buyers out there just due to seasonality, due to higher rates. Uh, so less out there in the market. This uh, this year, right, new year, 2024, we're sitting around 32%, which is pretty much the norm um, going back, you know, historically speaking, about one third of homes have a price cut sometime per year. But again, more homes coming on the market now, demand typically picks up after the first year, rates are, you know, there's this idea that rates are going to continue to to moderate. So got a little bit more activity out there and things are moving better than they were uh say a year ago same time jeb all right i don't know i don't know how quickly you can tell this story but um burn and i it was now it's burns finds more used to be burn it up but it's now burns finds and more um we were going back and forth in the comment section on the the podcast youtube channel says can you jeb can you please tell the story of your client that can't rebuild due to being in a flood zone the folks that inadvertently demolished the entire home instead of leaving Mm. one wall up that was what burns question actually was was do i have to leave a wall up can i tear the whole thing down and, and build it but just explain what happened there and why you generally do not want to completely tear the home down yeah, so I had a, a a client that owned a piece of land in flood zone A, um, and you know they had purchased it prior to me, so it, it, I wasn't there during the process of of the building phase. This was prior to them, but my understanding and and where where I would start is that if you're if you've got a home in a flood zone and you're considering a, a rebuild, talk to the city first, right? City can give you the information to allow you to get permits to build. That's really where the foundation of, of this all lies, right? If if they say they'll do it, get it in writing and, and you know, abide by them. Because if you don't, then you might set yourself up for failure. But my understanding was that this client tore down the house and left one wall to rebuild the house. Now, there are rumors that somebody, a neighbor that didn't like them, was didn't want them to rebuild, knock down the remaining wall. So now there's no walls. Uh, well, what the city said is this is no longer a remodel because if there's one wall up, you can remodel. Um, if it's if there's no walls, it's it's rebuild, which means you've got to you know go to today's codes and all of that stuff. Well, they're not allowing rebuilds in flood zone A, at least here in Huntington Beach, in that scenario, and so we had a piece of land that could not be developed because of, of, you know, the, the city not allowing somebody to just go through this process. I mean, it's more or less a lawsuit to fight with the city in order to get through it. Now, 
My client never developed it. They weren't going to develop. They, they just held on to the land. And But when we went to sell it, it was kind of a nightmare because explaining this to somebody and, and somebody, you know, wanting to take this on. This was what, three or four years ago, Josh, at this point, maybe longer. longer but that, that longer. piece of property still has not been developed. Um, it's a nice pie shaped lot in cool a flood lot, zone. Man. Could have a view depending on, you know, how you build it. And it just sits empty uh, because of um, how it all went down. So just keep that in mind when you're going through it. Maybe leave a couple walls up. Um, that way, if one falls down, you got to you got to back up. Don't don't uh, get aggressive with your demolition. Yeah. So but anyway, start with the city, go to the city, get the stuff and not just have a conversation. I would get it in writing and that way you got something to fall back on just in case you end up in a similar position as to what we're talking about here. Okay, Josh, if a buyer uses account one only for direct deposit and bills, but keeps the down payment in account two in a high interest account, would the buyer need to submit statements for all accounts or only account two to apply for a mortgage? Quick and easy answer. We do not need all of your accounts in most cases. So if you have enough funds to close, you got a million dollars in one account, and then we've got 30 other accounts with 20 grand a piece in them. We don't need to know all that. We don't need to document all that. We don't need to bring in retirement accounts. We have more than enough in the one primary account. Now, where could something possibly come up? Let's say that that million dollar account, every month you transfer $5,000 over to uh, another account. It could trigger a, a request for that. There are instances where something on a bank statement will show something going to another uh, account statement and require that coming in. But for the most part, 99 times out of 100, if you have enough in one account that is purely sufficient, you do not need to bring in additional accounts. All right. Good, good stuff. Um see. Uh, Antonio says, I have collections account that's affecting how much home I can afford. The company has said they'll delete my account if I pay, but I'm hesitant to do so and restart the account. So Josh, if you're in that situation, does the letter work? What should you be doing in order to get something deleted off your credit report? So this is known as pay for deletion. The credit bureaus are not supposed to do it, but especially medical collections, um, they will do this, which is not a bit as big of a deal anymore because they're not supposed to report. So we're seeing higher credit scores, less medical collections. But if you get a collection agency that is willing to delete for payment, I would absolutely do it if it's going to make a significant difference in your credit score. We can do a what if analysis and give you an idea of how much that improvement is going to be. But the mechanics of how you do it are very important. Never pay them and take their word for it that they're going to send you a deletion letter. You want to get them to email or fax you, if you have one of those archaic fax machines, a letter that states that for payment in full of X dollars by X date, we will delete this account from all credit bureaus, all three credit reporting bureaus. And then with that, once you have that in hand, you call them and you make payment. You have the letter that says what they will do. You have the evidence of what you did. And if they were to not follow through and delete that, you can go back to the bureaus and do a rapid rescore and have that deleted based off of them saying they would do it and you having made the payment. So it's just important to get that in writing ahead of time before you make the payment to them. All right, good stuff. And then you talk about the archaic fax machines. I didn't think anybody still used them, but Many of you guys know my wife's got some medical issues and documents have to be faxed in the medical world. Crazy, right? I guess HEPA laws or whatever you can't, I, I have no idea. But we're going to see a, another doctor, second opinion, out of state, going to Nashville, Tennessee to do this, by the way. Um, and the documents, they need them faxed. Can't email them. They want them 
via fax machine. And I think how grainy and shitty are those documents going to look once they've, they were faxed to them. Some of the documents were faxed to them to start. And now they're faxing documents. Like, what are we doing? It's a 21st century people. All right. Jeb, anyway. Have you seen, have you seen the Barry Sanders documentary on Amazon prime? I have not watched it yet. So Barry retired by faxing in a letter to the newspaper That's and then fantastic. to the Detroit Lions. So in the documentary, he's explaining it to his sons who are all late teens, early 20s. And he he had to like give him a detailed explanation. He's like, wait, it's like a printer that like a phone like sends papers out of to another place. And the kid's like, that's kind of cool. I like that. Like, no, it's not cool. And you don't like it. But, but it is pretty crazy how the, the information travels through. The, I mean, it. it kind of mind-boggling to some extent you know just kind of like an email but it's yeah anyway tangent there guys <laughs> um we are 45 minutes into a live recording here we're on instagram we're on youtube which is where we normally are um where we answer your questions live if you haven't done so already find any value in the show at all do us a favor hit the thumbs up subscribe to the channel if you haven't checked out the educated homebuyer podcast do that that's also on youtube as well um we're streaming there and uh every Friday, we take this episode and we put it up this this past week. We did an episode kind of out of out of character to some extent and talked about 100 lessons that Josh and I learned in doing not 100 lessons. Sorry, that would be a lot of lessons. The <laughs> lessons that we learned in doing 100 episodes, which is where we were. So we just hit 100 episodes uh, on the podcast. And the main reason we did that is because you guys continued to support it and say you liked it and found value in it. And we continue getting people reaching out saying how they much they like it and therefore we continue to do it. So you guys are part of the reason that we're here and we appreciate that. All right, Josh, question regarding refinancing. Can you do a refinance if your spouse passes, but you are on the title, but not on the mortgage? So the, the other spouse, the one that passes on the mortgage, but you want to refinance, can you do it? Who is on the mortgage doesn't matter. You just have to have a legal right to the property. So let's say if you weren't on title to the property and the, the mortgage was in your spouse's name, as long as you go through the probate process or you have a trust that says the property is being left to you, as long as you have legal documentation that says you have a legal right to that property, you can absolutely refinance it. So in this situation, let's say your joint tenants, they pass. So you file the death of joint tenant affidavit that you are now the only owner and you go qualify for a mortgage and you have no problem. So whoever has the current financing absolutely does not matter. This is actually fairly common when parents, grandparents pass away and leave properties that need to have new financing, that the underlying loan uh, that's being paid off is to someone other than our new borrower. Good stuff. Here's a good question, Josh, uh, from Genesis 32. Uh, so I purchased a second home three years ago. I put 10% down. Uh, can I do a recast on the home and get rid of the PMI? So they're really two separate processes, but there's nothing that prevents you from doing either of those. So if you had another 10%, you wanted to put that down. So that's um, additional early repayment. There's requirements. You can actually Google this and it's semi easy to understand for a non-mortgage professional. So look at the Fannie Mae requirements for removing mortgage insurance. It is different when you make a large prepayment. So you could do both, but they're going to be two separate processes. You might just call your servicer and ask them the process for both and tell them, hey, I put 10% down. I would like to put another 10% in. I want to recast and I want to get rid of my mortgage insurance. And they can tell you, will they cooperate with that? And what is the process? All right. There you go. 
Good stuff. Uh, Mina asking a question um, saying, can you go over the calculations to use for when interest rates go down? If is it worth refinancing? I think we answer this question every week, but it's a good one. So Josh, what is, what is the simple calculation that you believe is the best way to determine uh, whether or not it makes sense? It's a quick and dirty way for you to say, should I even be looking into this? Should I talk to a mortgage professional? Take $125,000 and divide it by your loan amount. So let's say you had a $125,000 loan amount. 125 divided by 125 is 1. 1% is how much you would need to save. Let's say you have a much larger loan, a $500,000 loan. 125 divided by 500 is 0.25. We only need to save a quarter of a percent. We double that loan size. You have a million dollar loan. You only need to save an eighth of a percent before you would see enough monthly savings to make it worth the time, effort, hassle, and potential closing costs of doing it. So uh, I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent guarantee. Um, I have people with million dollar loans that wouldn't do anything before you had a quarter or three eighths of interest savings. But for the most part, for normal folks with a Two hundred to seven hundred thousand dollar loan. It's going to give you a number that, when you look at it, you go, "Yeah, I would go through that process to save that much monthly." There you go. Now, wouldn't one twenty five into five hundred be half a percent? No, one twenty five into two fifty would be half a percent. This is why oh, Jeff yeah. does real, oh, real yeah, estate. One twenty five divided by two fifty is half a percent. That makes sense. <laughs> So oh, Jeb, I'm not I, sure where my mind went on that one, but yeah, uh, that's great. Jeb, at, at risk of, of taking your mind further astream, I am seeing here that there is a question on Instagram and I have no idea how to access it. Do you want me to field a question over yeah, here? Yeah, I don't you, I don't even see it. it it's weird that there's an overlay on my screen. It's something about solar and whatnot. See if you can right. do that. I'm going to throw a, a question. Up, no, I up can't here. do it. Do you answer the question. I mean, read okay. the question. Chris Fowler, hopefully the Chris Fowler from ESPN says, can you combine your VA home loan with any other home loan? We have a $350,000 guarantee through the VA, but are looking for more. Um, it's not really the way they work. Um, there's nothing preventing you from doing that. You could get a second mortgage behind your current VA loan. But what I would say is, please, if you're only qualified for $350,000, so it's guaranteed through the VA. It's it's not guaranteed through the VA. The VA insures loans that are made by other lenders. Lenders can have overlays. We talk on the show here all the time. VA is the most flexible loan program. If there's a reason why they're not going above that, you're probably not going to find a second lender that would go behind that. But um, Jeb, this is probably a good time for us to put up the link. If if you're in one of the states that I service, I could definitely go through those numbers and see if we can max that out. If not, we've got experts in every state in the union that can go through this. But VA is where we get some of the biggest misconceptions where lenders have their own overlays that maybe they have a maximum 45 DTI whereas or debt to income ratio, whereas we can go much, much higher under the VA program. So long way of saying there's nothing preventing you combining a second mortgage with a VA loan, but there would never Never be any advantage to that. You would have a much higher payment. And if the VA won't approve you on the first, that other lender is not going to approve you on the second because they are much more flexible in terms of the maximum debt to income ratio. So definitely use that link, reach out and be happy to go through it with you. And if it's not a state that I service, we'll get you connected to someone who can. All right. Now I see the question here on solar it says, how does getting uh, or, or buying solar help you with taxes at the end of the year. We purchased a home with a builder and purchased solar and it's almost tax season. So Josh, tax incentives for solar. How does it work when you purchase a home? What are the write-offs there? Is it something you got to talk to your CPA to have your tax professional 
factor in those numbers as to what you paid for solder for the tax deduction? Or is there something that the builder provides you? Like when you buy, uh, you know, uh, uh, an electric car, there's something that uh, is filed. I have no idea the answer to this, by the way. I'm, I'm with you that I have no idea. Here's how I would expect that it would work. If any of you have been through this and have the answer, feel free to chime in over there in the comments. But your closing statement is going to itemize out the cost of that solar. I believe that the cost of the solar is a deduction and or there is a credit, uh, a tax credit applied with that. So there's federal and there's state. So talk to your tax preparer. You really need a tax expert on this. But for, for Jeb and I, most of our business is not new construction where solar is now required. And most of the times, you know, we're not involved in a transaction where a seller is going to put it on for a buyer or a buyer is going to do it immediately. So it's just not something that comes up all that often for us. No, good stuff. Uh, another question asking, do you something California? Do you devices California? So I, I believe that's a mistype there. So not sure what the actual question is. Uh, but Javier, you can put it back in there and we will answer it. So guys got about eight minutes or so left on the live episode tonight. For those of you who are new watching on Instagram, this is something I typically do on my YouTube channel, Jeb Smith, uh, where we're almost at 100,000 subs. So if you haven't done so already, do us a favor, head over there, like and subscribe. It helps out the channel. If you don't listen to the podcast, you should, especially if you're in the process of wanting to buy a home, becoming an educated home buyer. It's really, really good stuff. So, Josh, um, let's see what we have here with regards to questions. I know we got some stuff starred. Hey, Jeb, I think yep. Chris's question is actually, do you service Colorado? So, yes, we can assist you with Colorado. Um, okay. And he... So Chris actually had had the question there uh, about that. So yeah, I can I can help you in Colorado. So if you use that referral link, Jeb will get you connected to me. All right, good stuff. Um, Scott's asking how is it, how important it is to have cash on hand and the ability to act swiftly. Cash is always uh, cash always puts you in a more aggressive position when it comes to making offers on property. You know, for the better part of a couple of years, I mean, I had cash buyers you know, up against other cash buyers. And, and we made very little progress in some of those, but they ended up all buying. But what I would say is cash is really king when it comes to buying distressed properties and that sort of thing. You know, if you're in a normal market, uh, sellers, buyers, I say normal market, when you've got, you know, just a, a normal transaction and there's people out there, as a seller, sometimes sellers look at cash as a, a better, um, route to go when, when taking an offer. But a lot of times, like if I'm a listing agent and you're making a cash offer, unless your offer is considerably better with regards to price and terms and everything else, the cash really doesn't mean anything. I mean, if, if you've got a loan that's approved by Josh and you're putting 10% down five, I don't care what the number is, but Josh tells me you're good to go. You're solid. And that's a more aggressive offer in removing contingencies and a higher price for my client. I'm going to tell my client, hey, listen, this is a cash offer, but because you're not really in a hurry and you've said that, you know, timing is okay, I still think this is the better offer because it's a higher price. Cash plays a role when people need to move quickly and or maybe they have a price higher than what we think it's going to appraise for. Cash could be an opportunity um, to kind of, you know, put yourself in the right position in, in those scenarios, but nothing wrong with ever having cash. It's always a good way to go, but you know, I wouldn't say it's uh, it always works. 
Josh, anything you want yes, to add sir. to that one? Uh, um, yeah, go ahead. That that part about the ability to act swiftly, just yeah. having a, a lender that is is following up on the offer and answering, hey, we can get an appraisal ordered today. We can get the loan uh, contingency removed in seven days, in 10 days. We can close in 14 days. I've had this situation come up here twice in the last two weeks where for whatever reason, the seller's hot button was, hey, I want the hell out of here. I want my money. So they didn't have cash offers. So they were saying, hey, can you, despite the fact that your financing move as quickly as possible, we had one in the fourth quarter of last year. We closed in 12 days. The fastest you can close by law is eight days just because of the dis disclosures that have to be made to you in the waiting periods. But anything less than 14 days is a very fast closing. And if you can do that, I think sellers like that. You decrease the time. You know, time time is money, but time is also certainty. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Uh, the question on Instagram, Javier asked, do you service VA loans in California? And I'm assuming he's talking to you, Josh, and the answer is absolutely you would. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you need to get in touch with Josh, you can use jebsmith.net, um, which is my website forward slash referral, and that'll get you to Josh. Uh, so hopefully that helps jebsmith.net forward slash referral. Uh, but with that, Josh, you got a couple minutes left, three or four minutes here to take on a couple of more questions. Anything that is sticking out to you. Are you going to leave Eli's question till the last? I didn't. Oh, here we go. I wasn't really paying attention. We know Josh was a good best. <laughs> we don't know this. We don't, we don't know anything about this. So the question uh, says, we know Josh was, is, is, is not, is not even. In. Here's the deal. We played in a, in a, in a, a six foot and under league in garden grove a couple years ago we played josh, we played josh was our six, you could have one guy above six <laughs> foot. Runner. that's the way that's the way yeah. it works so you could have one guy above six foot which was josh in this case and then all of us are like five ten five eleven people jo josh almost got us into a fight every game every game i mean there were times where i don't, we were I don't find that to be true to i don't find that to parking be true. lot because josh went out of control just side note guys uh, but he says, in your honest opinion, how would he have been fared? How would he have fared had he showed up at Kinston High School basketball tryouts before Brandon Ingram? Obviously. You know, there's some studs that before Ingram, you had Stackhouse, you had Stackhouse. Charles Shackerford, you had like you had you had some ballers back then, right? So it, 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 Ingram is like the new age uh Kinston High School basketball team. There were some there were some studs before him, and there's some studs there now. I think there's a dude going, a couple guys going out of there that are going to be coming um, either in college They're, or real soon. Listen, Kinston High, I, I appreciate the the lineage, the legacy. Would have had no problem fitting in. <laughs> oh, this is so good. Oh, Vanessa boy. Drew would have been throwing me lobs. It would have been uh, great. Jeff. That was a different high school. Different high school. Oh, oh my bad. Um, let's see what we got here. We got a couple minutes half. Let's see. Um, here, here's a really easy one, or not an easy one, but but one that people want to know. So, ten years, the ten-year Treasury, uh, the bonds rather are rising. Do you think we are going to see higher interest rates this year, Josh? 
It's possible, but unlikely. Uh, we've gone through that in detail. Go out to the podcast, listen to our 24 forecast. We go in detail as to why that is. Very expected that we would give back some of those monster gains that we got through the second half of October and November and December. Um, we talked about it early in the show here. Some of that um, lull through the holidays was overblown, light trading, and this year it ended up in lower yields probably than we should have seen. Got down to what, Jeb, 384, something like that. 4% yeah. was probably what the low end should have been. And we can go as high as 4.2, 4.26 before we really see a trend change from here. And I don't expect that to happen. As we go forward the next few weeks, we're likely to see some moderating uh, data that will continue the trend lower um, until we start getting some real clarity on, on Fed cuts. The Fed is still, we saw all of the Fed speakers out this week, Waller especially saying, we don't need to cut as fast or as aggressively as we have in past cycles. So they think we have a new normal. They're on record as saying, we think we're going to cut three times this year. The market is still showing six times, but much less solid in that opinion than what seven. we saw a, a month ago. Um, it, it may be, right. but if you look at it, if you look at it, Jeb, uh, at one point we were at an 85, 90% chance of a cut in March. And now that's down to like 61, 62%. So I think the answer is somewhere in between. I think the market is a little bit ahead of what the Fed's going to do. And I think the Fed is a little bit late to the realization of where we're going to be. I'd be surprised if we got six. I'd be surprised if we only got three. So I guess that means I'm in the four to five camp, but big picture, the underlying data should be telling us that inflation is not a problem, economy's moderating, and we can have lower rates than where we're at. The big question, Jeb, for the year is going to be how much compression do we get in the margins between the 10-year and mortgage-backed securities? Because I don't think I don't think the 10-year is going to dip massively. I mean, if we ended the year at 325, I think we'd all be pretty happy with that. And that would tell us mortgage rates are only three-quarters percent better than where they're at right now or somewhere in the low sixes. But I think if we see that, we'll see some compression and moderation in those spreads and probably get to the mid to high fives, but we've got to watch the data. I mean, the, the data is going to tell us everything. We think right. we know what's going to happen. Just got to watch it unfold at this point. All right, guys, one more question and then we're out. Uh, Chrissy says, have you heard about the NACA program? If so, is it a good option for a first time home buyer? So here's the deal. Uh, here in Southern California, NACA is not really an option in our market because of the price point where I'm located. I am familiar with it. In fact, I've done a video on it on my YouTube channel. What I would do is listen to the YouTube video, right? And, and once you're done listening to it, read through the comments. The comments there are the gold on that video because you've got people that have applied for the program and some people have gotten through, but the majority of those people have not. And they tell you why they're giving you these are personal uh, accounts of what happened and trying to go through that process. And I feel like that is the gold on that video. People that have tried to do it, telling you what it's like, whether it's worth it or not. So go check it out. If you just search Naka on my channel, it'll come up. But guys, it's the end of the episode. It's an hour and two minutes we've been on here. Uh, if you found any value at all, do us a favor. Hit that thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. Um, if you're looking for a professional, a mortgage professional anywhere in the United States, there's a referral link scrolling on the bottom of the YouTube channel can get you in touch with a real estate agent as well. If you're on Instagram, it's jebsmith.net forward slash referral. That'll get you in touch with, you know, someone that we know, like, and trust that can guide you through that process and really hold your hand. But we do this every Wednesday. We'll be back next Wednesday with another live episode. And after that Wednesday, Josh, is when I'm flying to Tennessee. So we're actually going to have maybe a week off or you're going to be solo. But either way, appreciate you guys being here. Till next time, adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Homebuyer. 
Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.